0: But on some level, it might actually f with you and like might actually mess up your thinking for a minute and kind of change your emotional equilibrium and the joy's gone and you're kind of, you know, you were relying on it on some level.
1: What's up, everyone? Today we've got a Harvard grad psychologist on the stream with us. Turned poker player champion. She's won a tournament relatively recently, and she's been coached by Eric Seidel. She's been giving keynotes in Davos, where the World Economic Forum has been hosted, which I don't think a whole lot of my audience knows about, but it's kind of a big deal. Ria, how does it feel to be on?
0: Um. It it feels good. Good to see you. Good to hear you. How are you doing? How's Vietnam? You are playing some high stakes right now.
1: Yeah, well, to start off, I played the 75k and I was told I was swindled a little bit. Um, Someone told me, oh, the tournaments are great. You're, You're 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 you know, it's a good tournament. And then I sign up and then it's all like the top tournament professionals. I'm thinking, what the hell have I done? (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I like immediately try to catch Talal bluffing. He joins the table and snap. Uh, he's not a pro. He's not really a pro, but he's kind of a pro. You know, mm-hmm. he's not a billion dollar hedge fund owner, and he just I try to catch him bluffing, and he has the nuts. So that's how it's going. But otherwise, this area is very beautiful, and I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, the the photographs look beautiful. I have a lot of envy and wish I could be there, but unfortunately, the stakes are much higher than what I play.
1: You won the, the thing in the Bahamas, right?
0: I did, yes, but that's that's want- a baby tournament, you know, not a 75k. The highest buy-in I have ever played was a $25,000 buy-in tournament, and that is because I also won entry to that um, the first time, and then the second two times, I did not win entry, but I played, and that's it.
1: Well, congratulations. It's not easy to win a smaller tournament even for so much, so many people. The 25Ks are kind of similar. I think they're sort of similar skill level, but I'm not sure. They've played like a wealth of smaller ones. Uh, I, I was just thinking, oh, you're like jealous of the Vietnam thing. I mean, it is beautiful here, although I didn't get to go to Bahamas, so you have that on me.
0: Well, there you go. So now I can feel good about having gone to the Bahamas, which is, you know, there's, it's funny because, um, one of the things that I write about, um, and that I feel very strongly about is, you know, I'm very anti-superstition, very anti kind of having any of those types of ideas and beliefs. And yet the, here I am, I'm like, Bahamas is my run good place. That's where I win tournaments and, and it works. So, you know, that's where I won the tournament. And then I final tabled the exact same tournament this year, um, and had a deep run in the main. And I was like, yeah, I play well in the Bahamas, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and is just something that psychologically speaking is a very interesting phenomenon.
1: Well, if it helps you, sure. I, I think it, Maybe it helps in some cases, but I don't know. I don't know how magic and and, uh, and, uh, uh, warping yourself into thinking. Well, I don't even know. I don't even know what to.
0: No, no, it's bad. It's bad. And I have, you know, I have in The Biggest Bluff, which was my last book, I have an entire chapter against superstition and how bad I think it is and that I think it actually is never helpful and can actually really, really hurt you. And I got into an argument with Ike Haxton, whom you know, um, quite well, I think, um, about this because Ike is someone who, um, definitely has lucky shirts and lucky items and lucky things. And, um, we, the funny thing is we had this conversation in the middle of Macau, which is kind of the, the center of belief in luck. And I was saying, you know, Ike, you're one of the smartest people I know, and you're one of, you know, the best poker players, and you're someone who should be very rational. And he told me, he's like, you know, on some level I understand, but it can't hurt. And so I just believe in it to take the power and kind of bring it it to myself no matter what. And I said, "Well, you know what? It actually can hurt because what happens if you, you know, lose your lucky shirt or if it gets ripped in the wash?" He's like, "Well, if it's ripped in the wash, I'm going to wear it anyway." And I said, "Okay, that's not my point. You're you're, you're woefully missing my point." And I think you know he was having fun with me. I think he was enjoying the conversation and kind of had fun playing that that other side of the argument, but it was interesting for me because he's not the only one. There are a lot of high roller players. You know, Steve O'Dwyer is probably the worst. He's got a lucky chair that he actually brought with him from tournament to tournament, which I think is insane. But, but it's interesting how people who are so smart, so good, have such solid analytical skills, can still fall prey to some of those biases, which are not logical and probably not good for their game.
1: Uh, it depends on, I mean, I think it's uh, a positive free roll if it doesn't, I mean, similar to Ike's logic, if it doesn't, like, inhibit, you, you can't sacrifice logic in favor right. of, of this, you know, luck nonsense. I mean, for, for me, sometimes it's tempting, uh, as long as, <laughs> like, the cost is not very high. I, I've done it if the cost is not very high, but there's also, like, I feel like there's something uh, you're missing out on, which is the joy factor, because like why the hell are we doing this anyway, why do you need money anyway, if, if you're not going to like do something that makes you feel good with it, you know, it increases your quality of life and like joy is also that thing, so you know, um, the, the luck factor um, introduces that element to it, so if you take that away, you take away all the joy that Steve O'Dwyer has when he wins the tournament with his <laughs> chair. Whatever it is. And
0: well no, I mean I think you're I think you're making a very good point that it is a game and you do need to have joy in it because I mean you're lucky that you get to play a game and the fun the fun part of it is important. And so so I do I completely agree with that. I think you need to kind of separate out like the luck factor and the actually believing in some of the superstitious elements because that the superstition part can take away from the joy as well because you know what I was trying to get at when I said you know what happens if you lose your favorite shirt is you know it's a free roll except what if your lucky thing what if something happens to it like if you're Steve O'Dwyer right and you have your lucky chair And what happens if all of a sudden, like the legs fall off and you can't sit in it anymore? You might think, oh, it's fine. I'll just get another chair. But on some level, it might actually with you and like might actually mess up your thinking for a minute and kind of change your emotional equilibrium and the joy has gone. And you're kind of, you know, you were relying on it on some level. And so I don't think it's quite a free roll. That said, yes, joy, incredibly important. It's important to have fun with this. I think you are someone who really epitomizes that with your outfits and your kind of, your personas and your ability to show that this game, you know, it's a hard game, it's a serious game, but it's also fun and it's a game.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I try to bring an element of joy to it. Um, uh, one One thing that what was important for me or a realization, and this there's this will be a whole subject I think for us to talk about, is that mm-hmm. as I played poker more and more I slowly began to realize that my idea of like positive impact and morality was a bit rigid, in fact, and that actually to do something like bring joy, etc., is like a variation of the strategy of making a positive impact. And vice versa mm-hmm. is also true. You can be immoral by taking, for example, from a' it's an, an extreme point of view but you can be effectively immoral by taking uh, the joy from like a group of people um, or you can do something bad let's just put it that way uh, by not by like killing their joy sort of thing I mm-hmm. mean there's it's, it requires a certain social finesse and a, a certain um, how do you say uh, a certain like perspective to see, see things from this lens when you're in this kind of field of like using logic and that kind of thing. Most people, most poker players don't look at things that way.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I've actually tried to make the point multiple times that I actually think that poker is a positive sum game at the end of the day, which is so counterintuitive because people you know, see it as just very rigidly zero sum, right? I win money. That means you lose. And mm-hmm. if you win, that means I lose, but there's so much more to it because it is a game. And it is something that's social and it is something that brings joy um, and fun and value to a lot of people. And right. so I think if you see it as a repeat interaction, if you see it as something that goes on over time, you see that it's not just about the money, right? And sometimes it's actually positive EV to lose money to bring, you know, to bring a good experience to other people so that they'll come back to the game. And bringing the entertainment value. Sometimes people are happy to lose money to you because they want to play with you and they enjoy it and they enjoy that experience. And there are so many different reasons why people play. And money is just one of them. And a lot of it is the social element and the entertainment element and the just camaraderie and the strategic thinking and just the challenge and all of that. And I know so many people this This sounds you know disingenuous because I ov- obviously want to walk away with more money than I came in with, but I know so many people who are just really happy even if they lose a lot of money to have played in a session with a certain group of people, or you, you know when you do things like play on a stream and people are watching and there's kind of that show element, um, there's a lot more to the game, and I think that if you see it that way, it can actually also It can open up more empathetic elements of your personality which again seems counterintuitive because it seems like poker players should be just very cold and calculating but you also need to understand other people's motivations where they're coming from what makes a good game what makes a good experience um, what makes people come together Um, and that's one of the things that you love about it if you take it too seriously if it's just about the bottom line then I don't know why you would necessarily do that rather than something else where you're just grinding it out day after day and, you know, slaving away in an office. There's something in poker that you don't get in a setting like that.
1: I uh, totally agree. And actually, uh, I've got two things to say. Uh, well, first of all, there's like a number of different topics here that we're bordering on that I really want to talk about, but we'll save for later. Yeah. Um, the first thing is there's a total um, analogy of this to life, actually, if you think about it. And you compare, mm-hmm. and you you could look at life as a game where the objective is to make as much money as possible, and then like mm-hmm. you know live the the the, the paper uh, American dream or whatever it is. Um, and I mean, there's good elements of that, but uh, if you were the more extreme variation of that is. You want to make as much money for yourself and live as positively as possible for yourself, which would be a very like superficial perspective, um, and amass um, just a bunch of pleasures, I guess you could say. A very if you had if you had a precisely hedonistic view on how to live your life, it would be equivalent to this analogy. But as we know, it doesn't really work that way, and a lot of people that do that do end up miserable, which is a I mean, if you agree with me, this is a good topic for us to talk about later. Because I I've long contemplated this idea, and also this is a big reason why um, I shifted my career from just playing poker to doing all these other things, like starting a podcast. Uh, starting a podcast. I'm not making any money from this podcast, uh, as to work with <laughs> This <laughs> isn't about the money. Uh, and the second thing is, I think I can challenge your belief that there's no magic and that there, there's no, no things that uh, transcend logic or at least transcend our current understanding of logic with a number of stories. Uh, they've certainly gotten me questioning things, and um, it would make sense that there is something for a variety of reasons. I wouldn't say it transcends logic precisely, but it transcends our current understanding of logic. Let's put it that way that there might be like some superstitious things that, or at least some magic or something that is hard to explain, not impossible to explain, but hard to explain with logic.
0: All right, all right. Well, uh, I'm game. I'm game for the challenge. I am someone who is very, very strongly um, in the camp on the opposite side of that. And I think that the burden of proof for anything is extremely high. Um, so, you know, I'm someone who comes from... Um, experimental sciences (laughs) and you know I there are psychologists who've tried to do ESP studies and I think that all of them are total bullshit there's nothing that's actually been been done to to high enough academic standards Um, we all obviously know that you have you know the challenges that originally Houdini had put out that if there's actually ESP and there's other world and you can communicate with the dead and do anything like that he would pay you a million dollars and we know that that prize was then taken up by multiple magicians and was never claimed and so there are, there are lots of people who've tried to prove otherworldly things and that said that said I remain open minded if there's proof but I just don't think that we've ever had proof and So as of now, I I remain to be convinced. So if you think that you have some magical experiences that are going to challenge my thinking, um, then let's go for it. Um, But I'm going to warn you that I'm going to push back hard.
1: Oh, I don't care about that. Uh, I want you to do. Um, A couple things. Firstly, I I don't take offense. I'm unique in that I don't take offense to my positions being challenged, as long as they're challenged with logic and reason. If they're challenged with idiocy, I don't like that. Uh, secondly, <laughs> I'm not going to say that it's real. I'm going to just open up the door so that maybe it's real and give you a couple alternative perspectives.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, additionally, I want to point out that of all those examples that you mentioned, they all um, have the characteristic of not doing it for the right. Not seek. They, like, a big uh, thing about magic is that for the most part, um, it can't be, like, it can't be manipulated. It's supposed to not be manipulated for these kinds of reasons. But I have heard of some really extreme things that go on. I don't really understand why they wouldn't come forward and prove themselves. Uh, but basically, uh, one of the things about Magic is that it's not supposed to be, like, proven. It's not. That's one thing. Is That's one of the tricky things. To be fair, I've never seen it. Clear miracle myself. I've never seen like a real <laughs> miracle, uh, but I've seen many hints of them.
0: All right, we're gonna go into history. Let's get like one. one let's take one. Let's okay, take. Let's take all... an almost miracle that you've witnessed.
1: Okay, we're going like totally off board here, but uh, I mean, <laughs> let's see an almost miracle. Um, a couple things. I can take one from my own life, but people let's do think it. That's a little bit crazy.
0: I won't think you're crazy, but I—I I will. I've already warned you that I will likely push back, but I'm listening with an open mind.
1: Okay. Well, I've—I've I've heard hints of a lot of things. I will say that I had one thought that I could swear was not my own thought. It was like it occurred to me—just one, just one—and it was very simple. So there's that. That's probably one of the closest I've witnessed to a miracle. I kept thinking about why this happened to me, all these sorts of things. Um, I mean, I had, a, I had a kind of a dream at the beginning of my, beginning of my life that I re-remembered when I was 29. These barely count. I don't know what to call these. These could make some, some kind of sense in psychology. But I'll tell you, um, for example, there was an example in Carl Jung's, um, maybe you've heard of this one, but in one of his experiments with someone who was a super rationalist like yourself... Uh, she had a dream about, like, a scarab. Uh, did you hear about I, that? I know
0: this, yes. I, I'm very familiar with Jung um, and spent a lot of time debunking Jung and Freud and yeah. all, all of that school, yeah. So, okay. no, what I was actually curious about was, you know, whether there was something from you personally as someone no. who is rational, who is a poker player, who is someone who should have, you know, a little bit... More of a skeptical lens on this, because just to be perfectly honest, I get very frustrated um, with magical thinking when it comes to poker, because poker is a game where you know delusion should really not be rewarded and where it should be punished, and if you're you know delusional about you know, oh well, you know, I know this card is coming, so I'm going to make this horrible um horrible.
1: Decision no, no, right
0: now—that's bad. Yeah. And so I hate when people say that when they were like, "Oh well, you know, I just—I feel I'm going to win this one, so I'm just going to do this." Like the white magic type of thinking—I have just zero tolerance for it, and it gets me very—it gets me mad because it's the opposite of what I fell in love with in poker, and it's the opposite of the skills that I think that poker can bring to the world and to the I, human mind. And so that's that's kind of where I'm coming from.
1: I, I agree with you, and to be completely honest if there is such a magic that allows you to know what the next cards are coming, it's like cheating, not only in the game, but it's also cheating, like according to how the natural order of things should be. There's reasons why these rules are in place. It's sort of like, it's like breaking. You shouldn't be able to do this basically. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't work like this. So it would be like a miracle for the sake of the greater good. And if you read about this in many different books, and I don't know if you've investigated this, um, yourself, but, like, it goes into, like, the psychology, like, on the fringe of this is the psychology of, um, I know you read about the psychology of con artists, which also intrigued me, by the way, I had a very similar idea to you, of using the positive sides of con artists for something good, uh, and, uh, at some point it occurred to me, what about the psychology of the divine? Is this real? What about the psychology of the saints? Are they even f***ing real? Because once I started reading in history books, I was like, what the fuck? I keep reading about all these miracles all the fucking time and I'm not seeing any of it. And I'm just like, what is going on right now? And I've heard of also some crazy things. Uh, I've heard of like a satanic group. I've heard of a couple, I read about the life of a Lester Crowley who was like uh, coined the Antichrist and he was basically pure evil um, until like he was anchored uh, by the world to value family, which may, makes them less than one hundred percent evil, but um, anyway, so if you read these stories, I mean, you maybe you're, you're familiar with Joan of Arc, for example. Sure. Okay. Well, that that was like, like the country of France was straight up saved by this like girl who was twelve years old or whatever age she was. Uh, sure. she had visions and then she stopped Like the whole story is completely insane for one thing.
0: It is but there are actually there are completely rational explanations for exactly kind of what Joan was experiencing and there are okay. lots of examples of charismatic leaders um, and so you know and I think that there are more miracles I'm putting them in quotes in the past when people didn't understand what was going on so some of the saints and people including Joan um, experienced migraines with auras and visions epilepsy all sorts of things that people just did not understand at the time which cause visions which cause kind of things that if you don't have the vocabulary for it are fucking scary right like i get horrible migraines and i have had you know migraines where i've lost my vision just actually gone blind And where I've, and I've had migraines where I've seen, you know, crazy auras and things that don't exist. And I, I just, I know what's going on. You know, I know the neurology of what's going on. It doesn't make it, it makes it a little bit less scary, but it's still awful. And I can only imagine what would happen had that happened to me hundreds of years ago. Right. And I didn't have any explanation for it except for the divine. And I think that that over and over again, that's kind of That's what we see, and that's where you have phenomena like Joan of Arc. Now, Joan of Arc was a total badass and a strong woman and an amazing, you know, an amazing person, and she did bring the country together, but I don't think there was anything magical about it except for, like, what a ridiculously powerful human being.
1: Well, um, here's what I'd say to that, is that, you know, people, when uh, there's this quote that says... Uh, hi, I forget the exact quote, but it goes something like, highly advanced technology will look like magic if you don't understand it. Yeah, and this sure. the, the how this relates to right now is that, I mean, if you remember what I said, that the magic would be very difficult to explain, but not mm-hmm. impossible to explain. Um, first of all, it has to be explainable at some level. Absolutely. Because it doesn't make sense for the universe. Like, the whole universe being logical is just, it's just like... A study of how the universe works right so what like this doesn't like wouldn't negate evidence of the divine exactly it would just um I, I, like my my response to you would be this was just like like even if it was like some like you know uh terminal uh c- cancer in the brain or whatever tumor um it's still like suggestive of potentially some kind of like, it doesn't really disprove it in my mind, let's put it that way. It's still effectively, like, a miracle Um as to why – well, it is. It's just a highly well, I only – I mean, the, the, reason I, the,
0: reason, the reason I laughed at that is because, sure, if you think of, like, every human life as a miracle and everything, then everything is having a purpose. But I just – I don't think that way, right? Sure. I think that actually – Things are random and shit happens and there's a ton of noise. And what our brains are incredibly good at is trying to make sense out of nonsense, trying to tell stories out of things that don't actually make sense. I mean, our brains are storytellers. That's what they do. They take all of this noise and they create a narrative that makes sense. And so, you know, they take just random chance and they say, oh, it's fate or there's a purpose to it. There's a direction to it. And there's and there's not. It's just us imposing that on this random noise of the universe and there's there's a phrase that I that I've used um, so I'm just going to quote myself I think that we're just interpreters of static (laughs) that's that's kind of what what we do and we try to find patterns and we try to find stories and we try to find whether you call it miracles or you know there's a there's a purpose for it or there's This was my fate or whatever it is. Um, But at the end of the day, I, I just I don't know that that's useful. And I think that a lot of times you end up with these really stupid things like saying, oh, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. And that's just total bullshit. Things just happen and bad things happen and they're not happening for a reason. Like they they just happen (laughs) and, and it sucks. And if it makes it easier for you to deal with, and if it makes it easier for you to interpret, if it makes it easier for you to live a good life, believing that there was a reason to it. Sure. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's wonderful. And I love that for you, but I don't think that that means that there's any kind of greater, purpose or a miracle or anything like that.
1: Sure. Sure. I actually agree with you. Um, the, the part where I, I don't, it's more like, well, to be precise, I don't disagree. Um, I think what I would add, to I love that,
0: that phrase. I don't disagree.
1: What I, everything you said is, is from a certain perspective, very true, but like, you know, you can say, you can have the saying, uh, everything happens for a reason. I mean, that's not an untrue statement. Either it's just a, it's like looking at like, it's like looking at the glass half uh, full sort of thing, in the sense of I disagree.
0: Like, <laughs> I think it is an untrue statement.
1: Well, what I'm I saying is that like, you, you know all you can really do is take what you're given and like work with it, sure, which makes it like a reason. But the main thing I want to get at is that <laughs> the main thing where I disagree is. At some level, like all the actions that you take, you have to decide for yourself what they mean or don't mean. Right? You can like look at sure. anything and decide it has meaning, and you're going to do this with it, or you can look at anything and you decide it, it doesn't have meaning. Or you get there's only so many pathways logically that you can take. Yeah. with that. And actually, this is um, this also brings us back to poker. I don't want to talk about this forever, but yeah, let's do it. But you know, it's like the same thing in poker. You can like. I mean, you can, create, you can construct narratives of, of, like, if you're going to use your, you know, the lessons you've learned to try to win, um, and I guess you can, like, you know, go deeper into that and create meaning out of it, and that way you create your whole different experience and it becomes, like, a positive free roll and all these sorts of things. Or you can not do that and uh, effectively not create a new sort of reality... Um, and in poker, the one analogy there is in life is that there's only so many different options you can take with the, with what you're given in poker, right? There's only like the bet, the check raise, the raise, there's only the, you know, after the downswing, are you going to learn and adjust or are you going to quit mm-hmm. kind of thing? And, um, in a sense, you're like deciding for yourself what these like random string of events will um will mean if you if you want them to or like what what reality will be created and so the aspect of doing that is something that can't be it almost is that that part of yourself like is there science in that i'm not sure but you could say that that something in that is like your soul or whatever uh this you might scoff at but this is my interpretation like you're you're your implementation of what's on the inside to the outside is something like what your soul is.
0: Okay, cool. I mean, no, I'm not scoffing. I think that you can, that's something that's such an ascientific word that I think you can have your own kind of different, your own feeling, your own definition of what a soul is, right? Like is, you know, are we, our brains, Kind of the you know the the funniest thing that I've ever heard about that is um, so when I was in, an undergrad, um, my psych advisor was uh, Steven Pinker, who's kind of a, a psychologist who's you know thought a lot about these questions. And we were having a conversation once about you know who are we, all these things, and he just made the joke that the only um, the only surgery where he would like to be. The donor rather than the recipient would be a brain transplant, right? Everything else you want to be the recipient, not the donor. (laughs) But a brain transplant, you want to be the donor and not the recipient. And because in in that view, kind of your soul, your essence, who you are, um, that's all in your brain, right? That's your gray matter, your white matter, all that stuff that's up there. Um, But that's a very kind of, that's a very scientist way of looking at it. And of course you can have different thoughts about it what makes you 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 know if you actually do have a brain transplant you know what does that even mean and there are so many philosophical arguments about that where you get into metaphysical realms very very quickly and it's funny that you and I you know have started out very much in the metaphysical <laughs> As opposed to, um, as opposed to in something like, you know, what's the correct strategy for um, three bet pots when you're in the small blind and you have, you know, the, um, those types that's of boring. conversations.
1: That that's, like, very, that's very, very boring. thing asking what's answer to 2.2 two. Like, well, it's, it's, it's that's, exac- like-
0: that's exactly right and it, the funny thing is so as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation Eric Seidel was my coach and I tried to get him to answer questions like that when we started working together because I'd never played poker you know I had no idea and he just refused he never once did he tell me how to play a certain hand because he was like no that's that's just that's the wrong question to ask that's the wrong way to think about it. That's not how you should be thinking about the game. You should be thinking about it at a much deeper level, um, not you know how do I play Jack Ten from the cutoff, in, you know when facing a race, right? Like that. That's that's boring, and that's not why we love poker. And so it's it's interesting to me though that we went kind of very much into the metaphysical direction immediately, but I do think that there's you know that there's a lot to be said for pushing back even when you want to, even when it's nice to want to believe in, oh, well, there's something else and a greater power and something that's kind of leading me and something that's animating me. I think it is important to just always push back against those things and to say, okay, you know, what do I know? What am I open to? You know, like I said, I'm open to the, all of these possibilities. Um, I just have yet to see, any single instance that would make me say oh okay we'll
1: get to all that i want to talk about you because we've been talking about all this like theoretical stuff and we're not talking about you you came from russia kind of a big deal uh when it was you know the soviet union uh big deal and it totally makes sense also from your own background that you're a no bullshit kind of person i mean i know that you know, I've met many Russians and I know that, you know, having to face all that kind of like stark reality kind of like filters all this fucking bullshit that people, you know, in the West believe because they've been dealt a silver spoon in their mouth a lot of the time because they don't, they just don't have to, yeah, they just don't have to deal with that. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and like how you ended up becoming a psychologist?
0: Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I left Russia when it was still the Soviet Union. Um, and that is very lucky for me. That was had nothing to do with my own decisions, right? I think I, I count that the luckiest thing in my life, because my parents decided to leave. Um, and I would not be here. We'd not be having this conversation had that not happened. Um, because, you know, I'm female, I'm Jewish, I would have had very few opportunities um, to become the person I am had we stayed there. Um, We ended up going um, to Europe, which a lot of Jews did at the time. So we went to Austria, to Vienna, and then to Rome, and then um, got asylum in the U.S. So we were stateless for a while and then came here. And I grew up in New England, um, in the Boston suburbs. And really, you know, was really Generation Zero, so you know we had no money, um, hand-me-down clothes, <laughs> nothing. And, you know, we were. I mean, if I think back on it, we were poor. But because my mom is amazing, she never made us feel like we were poor. If that makes sense, right? I never, I never realized um, that that was the case, and um, became just. I think. That was something that made me fascinated by humans and by how people interact and by language, because I couldn't speak English, um, went to school not speaking a word of English. And I had to be really closely attentive to other people, you know, to social signals, to what they were telling me. Um, And I think in some ways, kind of my love of psychology, my love of language um, came from that immigrant experience from of being thrown into a culture and an environment where I didn't understand anything and where everything was totally foreign and I had to make sense of it. Um, And then, you know, I ended up growing up, um, went to Harvard, as you said, studied psychology and writing, um, and then went to grad school for psychology, but never then straight from grad school started writing full time because I wrote my first book when I was in grad school. Um, and that was about Sherlock Holmes, using Sherlock Holmes as a model for mindfulness and thought. Um, and Very important to book. By the
1: way, I respect that.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, so that was that was my first book, um, and kind of set me up on a career to be able to write full time. So then I graduated, wrote my second book, started writing for the New Yorker. Um, wrote my well, didn't write my third book. Um, had a lot of bad things happen, which brought me to poker and my third book, which was about my time in poker. Um, and using, you know, poker to me always was not just poker. It was the, the interest in it was that it was a metaphor for life and a way to learn more about myself, about decision-making, about thinking at a much higher level. Um, and then, uh, right now I'm working on my next book, um, which is poker adjacent, but not about poker. Um, so so that's kind of a very short history um, in two minutes <laughs> of, of where I am. Um, and in terms of psychology, um, what I studied was self-control and decision-making. And my uh, advisor in grad school was Walter Michelle, who is famous for the marshmallow studies. Um, so he unfortunately died a few years ago, but... Um, he was the man who invented those you know famous pop studies um, in the 50s where you put a marshmallow in front of a little kid and you wait and see if they eat the marshmallow or if they can wait for another marshmallow you know ten minutes later and the kids who waited who were able to delay gratification ended up doing much better in life um, that's the that's a synopsis it's not it's actually much more complicated but that's like the cliff's notes version so walter was uh, my advisor and i got to work with the marshmallow kids who were when (laughs) i I worked with them in their 40s yeah
1: that's pretty cool Uh, all right yeah i know about that experiment i've read about it like three different times in like three different books yeah
0: it's one of the most famous i think psych studies of the of the 20th century
1: I want to talk about Blade Gratification at some point also. Yeah. Um, were you able to make money as an author? It sounds very challenging to make an money as an author. Like you have to have like a big hit, I understand.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I got very lucky. My first book, the one about Sherlock Holmes, um, hit the New York Times bestseller list. Um, so I was able to kind of cobble together a, a career from that. But um, I was very, I was very lucky and it's something where it was a, and it still is, you know, it's a constant grind. It's kind of like poker in the sense that, you know, since I, since 2008, which is when I went to grad school, um, I've never had a paycheck, never had a W2, never had constant health care, never had any of that, um, because I've always been a freelance writer. So, you know, some months I make tons of money and some months I make zero, Um, and I just have expenses. And so in a way that the career as a writer really prepared me for poker, because, you know, this is what your income goes, (laughs) looks like. And you can't rely on, oh, you know, I make X a month, because I never went on staff anywhere, um, because I never wanted to, you know, I had worked in an office um, in my first few years out of college. um, And I hated it. And I knew that that's not kind of the That's not the kind of career that I wanted to have. That's not how I did my best thinking. That's not how I did my best work. Um, Didn't bring out the best in me. Um, And so, yeah, that's, I have been able to make a living as a writer, but you wake up every single morning and you think, will I still be able to make a living as a writer tomorrow? Um, And the answer is I have no idea. And I think that's similar to poker.
1: So, um, did you get into poker for the money or what was, uh, was it because of the, the aspect of being able to reflect on yourself or what?
0: Yeah. Oh no, absolutely not for the money. Um, it was because, um, I went through kind of a time in my life where I had a lot of bad luck. Um, a lot of, um, things happened to me. Um, I got very sick, um, with an autoimmune disease that people couldn't diagnose, um, and you know, my grandmother died in a freak accident, and just all of these things happened all at once, which made me have this like feeling of helplessness um, and I needed kind of a way to process it and to think through kind of luck and the role that it plays in our lives and where control ends, because there's nothing quite like you know losing your health or losing someone. That you love to a freak accident that makes you realize how important it is to be lucky. Right? You can work really, really hard. You can do everything right, and if you're not right. lucky, if that's not on your side, yeah, then you're. F- sure, <laughs> sure. And so that's yeah. actually how I got in. That's how I got into poker um, as a way of thinking about that as a a metaphor for skill versus chance. The idea came to me when I was reading John von Neumann's Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. Um, So von Neumann was a poker player, and game theory was based on poker. That's actually the first introduction I really had to poker. I'd never played never watched poker. The only poker game I had ever seen in my life was in the movie Rounders. So that's kind of, that's, that's what poker was to me. You know, I'd never watched the World Series, never watched it on TV, um, literally did not know how many cards were in a deck. Um, and it, it was much more of a, oh, you know, if John von Neumann thinks that this is a really good way of studying these questions that are interesting to me, why don't I learn? Why don't I learn from zero? Why don't I actually dive into this game? And so I went on leave from the New Yorker. I actually left to do this full time to just dive in and, you know, learn from the best and see where it would take me, see how I could use this game, this immersive experience um, as a way of processing luck, as a way of learning to think about it in kind of a more metacognitive sense.
1: Well, it sounds like you really had your soul in the game if you weren't even in it for the money. I mean, the money is also better, I would think, than for writing, unless you're like really like a top writer. It seems hard as shit to make money uh, as a top writer. Whereas in poker, you you can go to the Bahamas and play tournaments. That's not going away. That's another thing. It's more reliable in a sense than writing where, well, I think. I I actually don't really know how that works. Like maybe you get.
0: No, it is. It is. it is more reliable unless, um, unless you're bad. No, but if you actually, like, if you have good training, if you work, if you work hard, um, if you have, you know, good coaches, if you have good self-awareness and are willing to kind of admit that you suck and that you'd have a lot to learn, um, then I do think that you can pick games where you will, You will make a a steady enough income, especially if you're willing to play cash. So at the beginning, I didn't play cash at all because, um, you know, when Eric and I talked about it, he said, "Okay, well, you're learning from scratch. You are you're giving yourself a one year time frame because that's originally what I said. You know, let's do it for one year. Like, you know, it's nice and easy, good for the book. You start training me now, then I play the main event of the World Series. And that's kind of the culmination. And he said, well, then you can't we have to pick tournaments or cash because they're different strategies and it's a different way of kind of thinking about the game. And we decided that I was gonna go in the tournament direction because it was more interesting in terms of drama and in terms of you know, metaphorical value for life um, than cash games. And so that's, that's what I did. And so for a long time, I played zero cash at all. Um, and tournaments, as we know, are very swingy. Even someone like Eric, you have years where you lose millions. Um, and years where you make millions and that doesn't mean that the years where you lost millions are you suddenly became bad but variance is a factor and especially you know in tournament poker and in life variance matters and the only cure for variance is volume (laughs) and so that's that's one of those things where um, if you're talking about comparing writing and poker if you're a downswing in poker can hurt a lot more because in writing, you don't have downswings, right? You're not suddenly losing money. You're just not making it. You can have yeah. months of zero, but you don't have months where you suddenly lose $100,000 because you bricked every single tournament that you played. Um, so in that sense, I think po- poker can hurt a little bit worse. So it just depends on, it depends on the time frame that you're looking at. As so many things in life, right? Are we talking about kind of the immediate term? Are we talking about the long-term? Um, and in the long term, I think poker is a great backup for writing in the immediate term, writing can be more steady because I can control it more. And if all of a sudden, you know, I have a month where I need to make more money. Well, I know that I can sell a piece to this magazine and I'll be guaranteed this amount of money. And in poker, I can't be like, well, I'm guaranteed that if I win, you know, that if I play this tournament, I'm going to win one of them. No, that it doesn't work that way.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, it's interesting that uh, well, one. One good thing about poker is you can you can do it while doing other things. That's one of the benefits of it. Yes. It's kind of like this odd, odd uh, has this odd list of benefits to doing it, um, and this odd like payoff and this odd like way of um, this odd thing that this is an unusual set of things that it teaches. Like, for example, as you said, if you have the self awareness to admit to yourself if you suck or not you or anyone, but, and you improve on your game. Oh, I'm happy
0: to admit that I suck. All good.
1: (laughs) Okay. Most people can't do that, by the way, uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, or, you know, it also teaches to not have biases and things like that, which is, in fact, I wanted to make a Ted talk on that, but I found it to be a bit challenging and I postponed it a little bit, but I will do it at some point. Um, I liked your Ted talk actually, or no, it wasn't a Ted talk. It was a, a keynote at the, the World Economic Forum. We'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I respect that kind of stuff. It's not easy to do, and it's one of the ways of making positive impact, which I appreciate. Um, I'm curious if what your... uh, What do you say? Your colleagues think about this poker thing. Um, Does your grandmother, for example, still think you've sold your soul to the devil?
0: Yeah, she kind of does. Um, She... uh, she loves me and she's supportive but she wishes that, you know, when the biggest bluff came out that I would have left it all behind. Um but it's it's interesting, you know, a lot of a lot of people have been very supportive and a lot of my colleagues have been very supportive. They think it's great, they think it's cool. They think it's fascinating um to do something like that. And then you have the people who, you know, think I'm the antichrist that I am promoting, you know, gambling and evil things and that I, you know, that I used to be someone who they could look up to and I'm not anymore. Um, And to them, I say, you know, good for you. Stop looking up to me. That's great. Um, um, I'm cool with that. (laughs) But but it is interesting because one of the main things that I try to show and one of the main kind of takeaways that if people actually read Biggest Bluff carefully, they'd come away with is that poker isn't gambling, right? If I actually look at you know, skill versus chance, it is a game of skill at the end of the day. And yeah, there's a gambling element in it, but there's a gambling element in life. Everything in life is gambling. There yeah. is, you know, there's an element of chance in everything. And poker isn't, you know, it's not baccarat, it's not blackjack, it's not any other game in a casino. It's actually a skill game where the most skilled player wins, not the not the best hand, right? And if it were just pure gambling, it would always be the best hand that would win. You'd have to have the best hand and you know people just have a thing against it and the moment they see you know poker and cards and money and all of this they think evil 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 chess not evil you know if i were a chess player i'd be a good jewish girl who'd be a good representative for the <laughs> for humanity but um but poker is not that um and it's it's a funny thing To see how strong those puritanical strains are in our society, um, that you know, the United States is definitely a country that was founded by Puritans, and you can tell, um, and that it's there's this very strong reprimand sense of, you know, you're doing something that's evil um and i want to push against that and that's one of the reasons i'm still close to the poker world i still feel strongly that it's actually it can be a force for incredible good in society for more rational thinking better decision making you know people who are actually poised to make the world a much better place and if more people thought like poker players like real poker players um people who take the game seriously, who understand it, I think the world would be a much better place with a lot less conflict and a a lot more positive some interaction. And so I still feel very strongly about being a good ambassador for the game and about defending it. And so, you know, I still get into these fights with people where they say, oh, no, you're just an evil gambler. And I say, you know what? No, I'm not. And I will actually try to take the time to talk sense into you. And if I can't, I can't, but I'm not going to give up.
1: I um, actually I agree with you I mean it's easy for me to agree and there's an easy way for us to be biased but I do think when someone makes this snap judgment of saying you have sold your soul to the devil and all of that they're really not thinking about things really analytically and they should ask themselves the question what is the devil exactly <laughs> um, and uh, related to this question a bit I mean I'd like to hear your thoughts on that but also I want to ask you the question why should we do good?
0: I mean, I think we should do good because it's a good thing to do. It makes the world better. And from a from a selfish place, like don't you want to live in a world that's better and that's nicer and that feels better? And I think it feels good to do good and to create kind of that positive space around you. And a life that has meaning is a life that leaves a positive impact on people, where people kind of, where you do Good things for people. People remember you well, because at the end of the day, we're all dead. You know, the only place we're going to be alive after we're gone is in up is in other people's minds, how they remember us, what we brought to the world, and that should be positive and and good. And to me, that's you know, it's its own it's its own reward. You, it's it's funny. I've realized at some point that, you know, when you just when you're nice and when you put more positive energy out there, the world just becomes a much nicer place. And if you're nasty, the world is nasty right back at you. There's there's really a sense of, you know, you you give you get what you give. um, And it's much more pleasant to go through life when you leave it every place a little bit better than you found it.
1: Would you, um? so do you see how what you're doing is not that different from saying, I don't know if you're gonna agree or not, but from my point of view, it's not that different from saying everything has a reason.
0: No, I mean, uh, it is different because everything has a reason as saying that, you know, there's like, if a brick fall, if the ceiling were to fall on my head right now in the middle of the interview, Um, there's a person who would say, oh, well, that happened for a reason. No, it didn't. Like, obviously, yeah, sure, there was some reason that, that, like, there was faulty, you know, construction, and, you know, I I probably shouldn't have died in that particular instance. But, no, that didn't happen for a reason. It was just negligence and something horrible. Because that's whenever people only say things happen for a reason when shit happens, when something goes, like, terribly wrong, right? Like, and no, that didn't happen for a reason. It just happened, and it sucked. And we can find explanations for it, but that's not what "everything happens for a reason" means. That's people saying like, "Oh, well, you should just like learn to live with it." There's a greater purpose for it. No, there's no greater purpose to the ceiling collapsing on my head right now. I pro- there really isn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'd like to.
0: I'd like to live a little bit longer.
1: <laughs> I don't exactly agree, um, but. In uh, Actually, in one of the religions... Okay, if the ceiling
0: collapses right now, I'm just going to blame you because right, you sure. didn't agree with me. Continue. Okay,
1: here, you can do that. Um, so actually, in at least one of the religions, it says almost exactly what you say in the fact that the world essentially represents... Your worldview represents who you are as a person. Your, your way of interpreting things represents who you are on the inside. You can look at the world as hell and look at all these bad things as hell, essentially, or you look at everything as good, and look at all these things as good. But uh, what this gets at is, um, it does get to a bit of psychology, actually, and actually there's a lot of bit of psychology in the religions. Um, I'm curious of your thoughts on that, but the reason I ask this question of why do good, um, is because, like, you know, if we're looking at our lives, you know, you're looking, you touched on this idea of, you, when you were talking, you touched on this idea also of uh, in, in poker, you know, the strategy goes beyond just, it goes beyond just playing the game. You you would be nice to people, uh, you know, because you don't want them to bluff you or, or whatever. You don't want them to be so harsh on you. And yes, it's harder to play against someone who's, who's, uh you know, nice, nice to them. And this goes beyond life, etc., etc. et cetera. And this leads me to believe, well, is everything a manipulation? That's one thing that I've asked myself. I've personally asked myself this question, wait, why, why do I have to do good for the sake of what feeling good or whatever? Why don't I just like, you know, go the route of this insane car, con artists? Uh, I've read about the con, or, con artists too, like uh, Victor Lustig, for example, uh, maybe you've read about him. Um, and yeah, like, why just like this steal for shitloads of money and things like that? Like, what is the point of all this? Um,
0: well, I'm, and, well, I mean, I think people, yeah, I have a good answer to that. I mean, people like Victor Lustig lead incredibly impoverished existences and die miserable and alone.
1: That's very interesting. I actually did not know that part. Uh, I just know the part where he scammed for, um, you know, for, uh, you know he like sold the eiffel tower then sold it again and he was like this master yep. con artist i did not know about the other and stuff and
0: yet he was always he was also always broke which most con artists are That's because kind of funny. they uh, don't yeah go ahead yeah no i said because they don't really you know they don't really do it for the money and they they don't <laughs> uh, <laughs> what yeah. it's don't. true no most con artists they they don't they con for the sense of power and control over other people, for kind of that feeling of creating someone else's reality and getting them to fall for it, um, that that rush of playing God, I think is is why they do it. Um, at the end of the day, so I spent I spent multiple years, you know, studying con artists and with con artists and kind of trying to get behind their motivations, and I've I've come away. Firmly believing that they could make a lot more money if they weren't con artists, but they, there's a rush to it that they, that they love and that's why they do what they do. And most of them, you know, most of them are perpetually broke, just kind of as a side note, including Victor Lustig, who spent many times, who was in jail many times, um, who just kind of had a barely above subsistence existence for most of his life, despite his successful sales of the Eiffel Tower.
1: <laughs> that is too funny. <laughs> they're in it. they have got their soul invested in it. <laughs> oh, that is really really funny. Um, uh, related to relating to this, do you uh, do you see like the kinds of strategies that you use at the poker table and think to yourself, okay, um, you know, now I'm going to live my life this way. I'm going to like think, what is my strategy for? Maybe even working out, maybe even like who you talk to, maybe even Mm -hmm. how you talk to them. Do you like think of it in this kind of way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that for me, life and poker have been this reinforcing cycle, right? Because there are things that I've brought to poker that have helped me become better more quickly than had I not had, say, the background in psychology that I had, the background in journalism, where I was very used to observing people very, very closely, because that's what I do for a living, right, it, it is kind of look at people and let them tell me who they are. That's how you write. That's how you do psychology. That's how you, how you play poker. But oh, yeah. there's also, there's from the other side, poker has taught me a lot that I've been able to bring back to my writing, my life, um, that... I wouldn't have thought I needed to learn, but poker taught me better than all my time in psychology and One of the things is something that you mentioned, which is emotion management because it's very easy to understand it in theory right and to know kind of the you know the studies behind it and how to exercise self control and all of these things but until you've been playing you know in a tournament for thirteen hours and it's one a m and kind of you've just been thinking and making really tough decisions for a really long time and you're just drained and your resources are drained. Um, there's nothing quite like that, especially like if you're getting down to kind of a you know final table bubble or just like some very important thing and you still have to be making good decisions. There's nothing quite like that to actually teach you what it means to have to manage your emotions and how bad you are at it, right? I I learned that, you know, hey, even I tilt, even me, the final student of Walter Michelle, the the person who worked with the marshmallow kids and who should know all of the best delay of gratification and self-control strategies. (laughs) I make bad decisions, when I'm tired. Remember the marshmallow kids. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> marshmallow kids, Maria. <Rhea. laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'm trying to channel those marshmallow kids and I can't. I'm eating the damn marshmallow because it's 1am and I'm hungry and I've been trying to not eat the marshmallow for the last 12 hours. Um, and so, you know, it really, I feel like poker in some ways is like therapy on steroids because you have to kind of... Confront all of this stuff, and all your shit's gonna come out at the poker table, right? All of your issues, all of that stuff, it's gonna come out at some point because you're in a high pressure environment and you're making high-level decisions if you're playing well, and you have to keep doing it over and over and over. It's not that just because you've made two good decisions in a row, you suddenly get a free pass, and you're allowed to not make good decisions now. Like, oh, okay, good job, Maria. Like, let me pat you on the head. Like, you did a good job. Now you can rest for an hour. No, you got to keep performing. <laughs> you got to keep doing it. Like, you don't get to take a break just because you're tired and you feel like you've done a good job. And that's not true almost you know, anywhere else in what I've done in life. Like, you can always, you know, you know, take a little break, like, take a pause, do this, do that. But even in cash games, you know, unless you're playing in a cash game where you've got, like, a gun to your head and you've got to keep playing, like, you can walk away for a little bit. But in a tournament, like, you can't. <laughs> you just... You have to keep performing, and in some ways, the stakes keep getting higher and higher and higher as you get further and further along. And so it's taught me a lot about decision-making under pressure, about how to make kind of those choices, how to try to manage my own resources. It's taught me a lot about self-awareness and mindfulness and being incredibly well-attuned to the signals that my own body is giving me. Because if you're not incredibly aware of that, you're going to make bad decisions because you're not going to realize, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I'm this, I'm that. You need to learn to recognize that in yourself. And that Stems from a very high level of self awareness. So one of the things, so I um, I'm someone who meditates and who does yoga every single day, and I've done that for over a decade. That really predates poker. But I found that it's like essential. If I don't do it when I'm kind of deep in a poker tournament, then I'm just dead. I'm not going to be able to perform well. It just gives me kind of a well of resources that I can reach into if I need it. Um, but but I do need it and it's it's something where you really realize that life and and good poker it's about everything you know it's it's a balance of mind and body and and all of these different things and you have to learn to control all of them and the other thing that poker has taught me is you have to learn to forgive yourself when you fuck up because you're going to f- up, you're going to make bad decisions, you're going to tilt, like you're going to get tired, like you're going to punt off your stack at some point, like you're gonna, you know, you're gonna do something bad, and in retrospect, you're gonna look at it and you say, "Wow, like I did, I did bad, <laughs> I should not have done that," and you have to learn to acknowledge that and to move on and to not just keep blaming yourself, um, and I I think that's a very important lesson for life as well.
1: All right, cool. Well, if you want to say anything else, you want to whatever, whatever you want to promote or no,
0: there's a, there's nothing to promote. I mean, the biggest bluff if people like poker and are interested in any of the ideas, um, is, is something that I think is good, but I'm biased because I wrote it. So that's my, that's my latest book. I'm working on my new book right now, but, um, it's not going to be out for a few years. So it's a little bit early to promote that. Um, but hopefully, you know, we can have this conversation, um, not just not just soon to pick up on all these topics, but we can talk again in a year when the book is actually slated with a publication date and then we can promote that. I can give you a little hint and say that the book is about cheating.
1: Okay, I am intrigued by this. This is a topic I was also interested in. Uh, all these topics, by the way, I thought a decent amount about like why not cheat, uh, why cheating sucks, uh, all these sorts of things. So yeah. I'm looking forward to it and uh, congratulations Wonderful. on your future book.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I hope that you end up coming away with luck on your side. But on some level, it might actually with you and like might actually mess up your thinking for a minute and kind of change your emotional equilibrium and the joy has gone and you're kind of, you know, you were relying on it on some level.